recorded live. Wow, I did it again. This is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturday. Before beginning tonight, I would like to um, take a minute or two to repeat a few things I said during last night's program. Since I started doing this five and a half years ago, getting out of prison, not really knowing anybody, I made a few um, unfruitful associations. Since doing this, I've found, I've found two basic groups of people professing the Christian identity faith. There's a few um, extremist nuts aside from these two basic groups, but I'm not talking about them tonight. The first group has a clear position on the race issue and the racial message of the Bible. And they also generally understand that man, with all of his failures, cannot be saved of his own accord because no man can keep the whole law and no man can possibly save himself. Yet, on the other hand, this group understands a need for the law and they recognize that it's good and they use it as a model for behavior while acknowledging that sometimes men fail. And in that failure, a need for mercy is realized especially for the mercy of God, but also for mercy towards one another. This first group, they follow what the scripture teaches. The second group, the second group has a fuzzy position on the race issue. They ignore a large portion of scripture they prefer their own agendas. Then in turn, they subscribe some necessity for works on the part of man in order to somehow earn salvation. You can't earn your salvation. Sometimes the works which these, this group, which these people demand, are innocuous. The more extreme of these demand that the entire law be kept, the feasts, the Sabbaths, even the circumcision sometimes, that those things be kept in order for you to attain your salvation. Well, that's the failed lesson in the Old Testament. That is why the law was our tutor for Christ, because we realize that we can't attain our own salvation. This group also insists on the maintenance of other rituals, especially water baptism. Of course, they would love for you to subject yourselves to them through the dispensation of these rituals. Because, of course, only Pete Peters could baptize you the right way. That's just sick. This is the pharisaical attitude which Paul of Tarsus resisted and condemned because it is antithetical to all of the promises in Christ. 
And the men who espouse these things, the men who insist on these things, they hate people like me who correctly teach that there is no need to undergo their silly rituals and that we should never subject ourselves to man. The people who teach or subscribe to rituals are self-righteous because they believe that they are attaining their own salvation. Following these things, those who are captivated by this group are often injected with universalist ideas because they believe that men are saved by their own works. And therefore, to them, the plain word of the promises of God are no longer relevant along racial lines. These people are not Christians. They are Catholics. And aside from their sacramentalism, they teach some perverted admixture of universalist Catholicism, along with an incomplete recognition of Israelite identity. And, and, and lately it seems there's a whole crowd claiming to be Christian identity that are trying to erase the word identity. Oh, you could be 25% mixed or 15%. Perhaps, in, in the words of that Jew boy from Chicago, what if a white person who is only 85% white and he needed a, a person half his age to correct him and say, hold it, because a white person is 85% white, isn't it white? And now we got a 25% club and we got a 49% club. It's appalling. It's appalling that identity Christians even give these people an audience, even accept these people. Nothing they have to say is any good. If you violate the, the, the demand of God for racial integrity, if you teach the violation of that, you're gathering wolves to the sheep. Nothing you have to say is any good whatsoever. These people must be ostracized. They have to be pushed out of identity Christian, Christianity. We have to make a mockery out of those clowns for teaching that garbage. Pushing sacramentalism in place of racial integrity, they become twice-fold the children of hell because they prefer the works of men over the handiwork of God. The second group, the people that push these things, they contend with Scripture. They don't accept the Scripture. They're fighting with the Scripture. They're found fighting with the Scripture in many ways. Read your Bible and believe the Word of God from the whole Bible, not just from Acts chapter 2 or from your own corrupted vision of, of the, the last line in Joel 3 or Deuteronomy 23.2. I said this a few weeks ago, and I'll say it again tonight. Real Christians do not troll. If you are listening to this program on TalkShoe right now, as probably about a third to a quarter of tonight's listeners are, most of them are actually listening on Christagenia, there are trolls in the chat room right now trying to make a statement or post a message. They are no better than Antifa Jews. By their trolling, they show that their real God is the ADL. 
I'm not going to mention their names because I'm not going to give them any advertising. Their real God is the ADL, the JIDF, or some similar group that's cutting paychecks for them so that they could have time to waste trolling other people's talk shoe programs. I don't have time for that. Christians know to engage in things which are constructive for building the kingdom of God. And when somebody disagrees with you, being a Christian, you shake the dust from your feet and you move on. You don't go trolling that person's chat room and harassing those people. That's not Christian. One may have to write an occasional rebuttal or answer something in a scholarly paper or even here in a program. But Christians do not troll chat rooms. Real men with real messages do not have time to be trolls. These people that you see trolling these talk show programs know this. They're working for the enemy. They're working for the Jew. If they were working for Christ, they'd be off somewhere trying to build the kingdom of Christ. They wouldn't be trolling somebody else's chat room like little flaming little sissy Jew boys stroking their, their prayer shawls. Tonight's program, the non-Adamic races in eschatology. This is actually part two, and there will be a third part of this series. If I had to list the prerequisites for a full understanding of the things I'm about to say here tonight, I would probably list all of mine and Clifton Emmeheiser's work in the book of Daniel, and also my entire Revelation series, as well as the first 19 installments of this two seed line series. That's, I, I can't start from the beginning every program. That's just the way it is. First, though, I'd like to define eschatology because a friend had asked me to define it for somebody. Eschatology comes, the, the word comes from the Greek word eschatos. Eschatos means end. That's all it means, the end. It can be used figuratively as it often is to mean the future. So eschatology is simply a study of the end. A study of eschatology is a study of the biblical prophecies concerning the end times. Tonight we're going to start with, and, and, and let, let me um, off the top of my head recap last week. But last week I presented um, scriptures from Isaiah chapter 56 and, and actually described that whole chapter to sort of put that in perspective. But Isaiah chapter 56, at, at, the, um, at the end of that chapter, talking about the last days, what we see the words, Arise, ye beasts of the field, arise, ye beasts of the forest, and, and devour and, and kill and eat. I'm paraphrasing, right? And then a reference to the watchmen of Israel and how blind they are and how they are dumb dogs. And we explain that, that that basically is a description of universalism, which invites the wolves into the sheepfold to devour the sheep. We saw a similar prophecy in, in um, Jeremiah chapter 31 in relationship to the culmination of the new covenant, 
where Yahweh says that he will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And, and we will see tonight some, um, some of the reasons as to why he said that. We also saw Joel chapter 3 and, and the, the, the prophecy concerning the locusts, caterpillars, canker worms, and palmer worms sent amongst the children of Israel in the last days, which we are, we believe we are in today for certain, and how those aren't real bugs, they're not real insects, they are actually these other races who are amongst us devouring our society and our goods and our children for themselves. Those were the three key scriptures that we touched on last week. This week, we are going to discuss Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 20. We're going to um, discuss in brief Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, Psalm 118. I think last week I called it Psalm 137. I was confused with another prophecy. Psalm 118, Obadiah, verses 15 and 16. Very important verses that most to see line pastors, so-called pastors, that they're all make-believe, that they miss. They love to teach Obadiah 18, and they all gloss over or don't even get Obadiah 15 and 16. So we'll discuss those tonight. It, it's a disgrace that these clowns just gloss over Obadiah 15 and 16. And, and then they go teach people that they can accept their bastard grandchildren. That's incredible. And we'll talk about that again tonight. I'm not going to lay off that topic. Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman cloaked with the sun, and the moon beneath her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, by now, anybody should be able to figure out that the woman represents Israel, the nation. And she, conceiving in a womb, then cries out, travailing, and being in distress to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his head seven diadems, or diadems. And his tail sweeps away a third of the stars of heaven, and casts them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth in order that when she should give birth, she may devour her child. And she bore a man-child who was going to shepherd all the nations with an iron staff. And her child was carried up to Yahweh and to his throne. Now, anybody should be able to figure out, any Christian should be able to figure out that the great red dragon represents the satanic entity Satan and his angels, and that the child, of course, is the Christ child. And she bore a man-child, he who was going to shepherd all the nations with an iron staff, and her child was carried up to Yahweh and his throne after the resurrection. And the woman fled into the desert, where she has there a place, having been prepared from Yahweh, in order that there, they may nourish her for 1,260 days. Biblical prophecy is written in a poetic language from which 
we should derive images representing historical facts, past, present, or future, or sometimes past, present, and future. Revelation chapter 12 is unique because the images which it draws can indeed be understood to be describing all three aspects of history relative to the writer, past, present, and future, when it was written. Sometimes, in order to describe the nature of future events, past events must also be depicted. The woman here is Israel, but the woman began to flee into the wilderness long before the Christ child was born. And it is certainly the birth of the Christ child which is described here. Yet the woman, actually being a race of people, a part of that race was in the wilderness already, while a remnant of that race, staying behind, had brought forth the Messiah. The woman's fleeing to the wilderness was a lengthy process. And likewise, the great red dragon is described as having seven heads and ten horns. They also represent a lengthy process. The seven heads are described in Revelation chapter 17. Some of them, from a different perspective, are described in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7. We see that the seven heads and the ten horns represent world empires and world rulers. So the great red dragon and its seven heads and ten horns lasted for a very long period of time. In Revelation chapter 13, they're described again, and we can deduce by matching that with language in a, in a similar prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, that those seven heads and ten horns are world empires which span 2,520 years, the period of Israel's punishment under those th those world tyrannies. And we also see that the um, that these that these series of empires are are represented as beasts. We see that the dragon gives its power to the beast, and and that is the satanic entity, what which is not. A spirit in heaven, the satanic entity, is a race. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a race which is, by nature, it, 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 it's hostile. It has enmity towards the true people of God. That's the story of Genesis chapter 3. That's the story of Revelation chapter 12. So the woman's fleeing into the wilderness was a lengthy process. The dragon's seven heads and ten horns represents a lengthy process. Both processes unfold simultaneously over long periods of history. Herod the Edomite, who tried to slay the Christ child, he was a representative of the dragon who attempted to destroy Christ. And by that we can learn a lot about the nature of the dragon. Yet the dragon is also represented by that serpent of old. So these things are concepts and historic entities rather than mere individuals and singular events. Of course, the serpent of old is the Genesis chapter 3 serpent, and Herod the Edomite 
was a descendant, was of the seed of that Genesis chapter 3 serpent, which was one branch or one individual in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which had to be an entire race descended from the fallen angels. And not simply one individual who magically appeared out of heaven and seduced Eve and disappeared back into heaven. That, that's the comic book version of Satan. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his messengers fighting with the dragon. And the dragon fought and his messengers. And they did not prevail, nor was their place found any longer in heaven. And a great dragon had been cast down, that serpent of old, who was called the false accuser and the adversary. He who deceives the whole inhabited earth had been cast into the earth, and his messengers had been cast down with him. If you think that Satan's in heaven, you have a problem with Scripture. Satan isn't in heaven. Satan was cast out of heaven. Because the satanic entity is related to the Genesis 3 serpent, that serpent of old. Well, Satan had to be cast out of heaven before Adam was placed in the garden. Because the serpent and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are mentioned as soon as Adam is placed in the garden. There they are. Yahweh didn't put them there. They're there. They're already there. If the dragon is that serpent of old, this must be a reference back to the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. Therefore we see that Satan and his angels fell from heaven sometime before the events of Genesis chapter 3. As I said in the beginning of this explaining two seed line series in Pragmatic Genesis, it doesn't matter what you want to picture heaven to be. If you want to picture heaven as some other dimension, I'm not going to argue with that. We should not argue over that. If you want to believe that heaven is some place in the sky, that's fine. I'm not going to argue with that because I can't prove it either way. If you want to believe that heaven, as the word was used in other ancient literature, as well as in the words of the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures, heaven is an ideal government of God on earth or, or, or a government ordained by God on earth, as the word heaven is often used, then that's fine too. And that's more pragmatic than the first two interpretations. But we shouldn't beat each other over the head on what this Revelation chapter 12 heaven is because none of us can actually prove where Satan fell from. We, we can't go back that far in history. It's just not going to happen. I understand the words of um, Christ in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan fall from heaven. Well, well, that's nice, but there's no saying that that also isn't an 
allegorical heaven. So we shouldn't beat each other up over narrow interpretations of these words, which we can't prove one way or another. Whether these words are used literally or allegorically doesn't matter. What matters is the lesson that we draw from these things and what it means to our race in Scripture and in history. That matters. There are fools who want to imagine that Satan is still in heaven. They are fools. The Revelation, chapter 12, says that Satan was cast out of heaven and his place was found no more in heaven. If you want to insist that Satan's in heaven, you're basically an idiot. It's very clear that Satan's place was not found any longer in heaven. Satan, being connected to that serpent of old who was on earth in the Genesis 3, in, in, in the Genesis 3 account, his place couldn't have been found any longer in heaven, or you're not accepting the scriptures. You're part of that second group I explained, which contends with the scriptures. Paul of Tarsus said in 2 Thessalonians that Satan was sitting in the temple of God, imagining himself to be a god. And Paul was referring to the temple in Jerusalem. And Paul said to the Romans that God would crush Satan under their feet shortly. Not 14 years after Paul wrote those words, the Romans destroyed Satan in Jerusalem and leveled the temple. Imagine that. Satan, to Paul of Tarsus, was the Edomite Jew. So was Herod, who tried to destroy the Christ child. A pragmatic view of these things is in full accordance with history and scripture. So this war in heaven is describing events which must have happened in the distant past. But many scriptures have dual fulfillments. This scripture has three and possibly a fourth fulfillment. In fact, I'm sure it has a fourth fulfillment. We just haven't seen it yet. I explained three fulfillments in Christ-like. I'll discuss two of them here. The first fulfillment was when Satan was tossed from heaven back before Adam was placed in the garden. The second fulfillment was right at the time of Christ when Satan, sitting in the temple of God, imagining himself to be God, was tossed from heaven again. And the temple was destroyed. And all, if one is a Christian, a true Christian, all of the um, Jewish claims to legitimacy were destroyed along with Jerusalem in 70 AD. And the early Christians understood that those Jews were devils. They were evil simply because they rejected Christ. It's a damn shame that Christians today don't understand that. They are Satan collectively. 
Satan was then locked in a pit. And we'll describe this again shortly. Satan was locked in a pit. That happened during the Christian millennium of the Middle Ages. Now, Satan has been released from the pit, and once again, the same Edomite Jew has taken over our society. So the war in heaven. Also, awaits a future fulfillment for the last time. So this war in heaven is describing events which happened in a distant past, but it's also an allegory for events which were transpiring or which had transpired recently when John was writing. The dragon can represent the original corruptors of our race. The dragon can represent the original angels which rebelled from God and which were thrown out of heaven. And only a fool would want to imagine that the dragon is back in heaven because the damn dragons are out there walking all over the place. Mostly in New York. I have personal experience with that. The dragon can also represent the casting down of Satan when Jerusalem was destroyed and, and the religious authority of the Jews at that time. And the dragon sits in heaven again today, sitting in all of our seats of power and government throughout the white Christian world. Verse 10. And I heard a great voice saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God has come, and the authority of his anointed, because the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. He accusing them before our God day and night. And they prevailed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they had not loved their lives even to death. For this reason, rejoice, heaven and those, heavens and those dwelling in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the false accuser, or the devil, has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has a short time. Well, many thousands of years is a short time in the eyes of Yahweh our God. Christianity represents not only what has been, but also what is coming. And the people of God will indeed prevail over the enemies of God through the blood of the Lamb. Since there were still but a few martyrs of the faith, when John wrote these words towards the end of the first century AD, we see that this would also be an ongoing process. It is still going on today. And when the dragon saw that he had been cast down into the earth... He persecuted the woman who had given birth to the man-child. This is true in Genesis 3. This is true in 70 AD. It's true today. And they had given to the woman the two wings of a great eagle in order that she may fly into the desert, into her place. That word desert could also be translated wilderness, where she is nourished there for a time, times, and half of a time from the face of the serpent. The nourishing of the woman encompasses the entire period, over a thousand years, during which the gospel was spread throughout Europe. The gospel nourishes the woman. It was spread throughout Europe during that period to all of the tribes of 
Israel in dispersion. Verse 15. And the serpent had cast from his mouth water as a river after the woman in order that he may have her carried off by the river. And the earth assisted the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and gulped down the river which the dragon had cast from his mouth. And the dragon was angered by the woman and went to make war with those remaining of her offspring who keep the commandments of Yahweh and have the testimony of Yahshua. And he stood upon the sand of the sea. He stood upon the sand of the sea because he didn't yet have entry into Europe. That didn't happen for quite some time. He was warring to gain entry into Europe. That's why he sent this, the, the flood after the woman. In Isaiah 27.1, another end times prophecy, the serpent is in the sea as he is today. In that day, Yahweh, with his soaring great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. The sand can represent the surrounding portions of the earth where the woman was, and the sea can represent the mass of the world's other peoples, as it often does. The flood which the dragon casts from out of his mouth are the world's non-Adamic races, the non-white races. This is evident in the history of Christian Europe. Once it is realized that the dragon is represented in modern times by the Edomite Jew, you see, something happened with Jacob and Esau, as the scripture attests, when Isaac was placed on the altar. They were both dedicated to the purposes of God. Jacob and Esau were dedicated to the purposes of God when Abraham sacrificed Isaac on the altar to God at God's request. When in the ancient world, a man placed something on an altar to a deity, it became the property of the deity. Abraham had the property rights of his son and placed his son on the altar at Yahweh's request. Isaac became the property of Yahweh. From that period, now, at that time, when Abraham placed Isaac on the altar, there were many other branches of the white Adamic race, the tree of life. There were many other branches of the enemies of God, the corruption of God's creation, and the fallen angels, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were all in the world. There were many other peoples in the world from both parties. However, from the time Isaac was placed on the altar, world history would revolve around Jacob and Esau. And a lot of the Adamic race joined themselves to Jacob's side, and the Israelites intermarried with them, especially in Europe. But a lot of the Adamic race, and the others, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, 
they are on Esau's side of the equation. And the symbology of Israel and Esau, or the Edomites, Edom, are that history would revolve around those two parties from that time. And it has. So even though all of the other parties are, are, are important in the larger equation, history, as decided by Yahweh, revolves around the struggle between Jacob and Esau and is represented by that struggle. So Esau is the dragon and Israel is the bride. But that doesn't discount all of the other branches of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which will eventually be destroyed, or all of the other branches of the white Adamic race, which will eventually be preserved, be restored, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 5, which we presented here last week. So history revolves around Jacob and Esau, but that doesn't discount the world's other peoples. Not at all. The flood which the dragon cast from his mouth are the world's not Adamic races. This is evident in the history of Christian Europe. Once it is realized that the dragon is represented in modern times by the Edomite Jew, and once it is realized in history and this can be demonstrated to a pretty good extent, that it was the Edomite Jew who was responsible for the creation of Islam, so that the non-Adamic races of Africa and the Near East could be militarized by the Edomite Jew. And once it is realized that it was the Edomite Jew who brought the Arab invasions of Europe, who brought the Turkic invasions of Europe. And later on, even the Mongol conquests of Eastern Europe, which started as a conquest of the, of the Khazars by the Mongols. And those same Khazarian Jews basically opened up the gates of the cities of Eastern Europe to the Mongols. But this process is not finished. The earth has not yet swallowed the river which the dragon has cast from its mouth. Jewry is still making war against Christendom. And most importantly, we are still being overrun with those same races of people which the Edomite Jew has used to invade white Adamic lands for millennia and Europe, Christian Europe, for the last 1,400 years. So when you accept a bastard, when, when you accept a person of another race into your family, into your company, you are accepting the work of Satan who has sent this flood to persecute the woman. And if you're an identity Christian and you accept bastards and you accept these other races as peers, you should know better. You've accepted the works of the devil. Yes, you have. There's no doubt. 
If the other races of people are invading the lands of the woman, the woman who represents Christian Israel, then we should be able to figure out that those other races are the flood from the mouth of the serpent. When white Christians see those other races, they should see them as exactly that. These are the beasts of Isaiah 56. These are the beasts of Jeremiah 31. These are the locusts and caterpillars and canker worms and pommel worms of the prophecy of Joel. It is the same Edomite Jew bringing these people into our lands today under the guise of liberalism, diversity, multiculturalism. There is no other answer explaining these other races amongst us today than this answer, which is straight from our Bibles. It's incredible that anybody calling himself an identity Christian pastor would urge you to accept a bastard. When you see a bastard, you see a man or a woman who has already been consumed by the devil. These clowns, they're not Christian identity pastors. They're jokers working for the ADL. That's what they are. Or doing the devices of the Jews, of Satan, for one reason or one agenda or another, there's no doubt. Reject those people. If we do not understand the Hebrew parallelism, and its use in prophecy, which certainly extends into Greek scriptures, then we will never understand prophecy. The Revelation is not a single vision from beginning to end. Rather, it is a series of visions, and each vision can overlap with or parallel the others. We would assert that after the messages to the seven assemblies, we have a long vision of history from the expansion and fall of Rome, the four horsemen, all the way through the Revelation, I'm sorry, through the Reformation in Revelation chapter 11. Then, Revelation chapters 12 and 13 are an overview of things which happened in the beginning and of Israel's seven times of punishment, a parallelism to much of the account in the chapters which preceded. Then, Revelation chapters 14 through 17 describe the conditions of our modern era and the time of Jacob's trouble, culminating in the fall of Mystery Babylon, Revelation chapter 18, and the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, which is indeed the return of Christ and the destruction of his enemies. Yet, in Revelation chapter 20, we see a different vision begin, a parallelism of Revelation chapters 14 through 19, which describe the same events in a different manner. Revelation chapter 20 retells in a different way from a different perspective 
The same battle of the dragon against the woman. Revelation chapter 12 is an overview image of all history, while Revelation chapter 20 is also an overview image of sorts, but only of the latter part of history, the part which Revelation chapter 12 doesn't quite get to, the Christian millennium and its aftermath. I'm going to read parts of Revelation chapter 20. And I saw a messenger descending from out of heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Now, now, now here are the fools that think that Satan is still in heaven, right? Where's Satan released from here, from heaven? No, the messenger came from heaven to release Satan. That's true. This is a punishment from God that Satan is able to do these things to us. But that doesn't mean that it's God doing these things to us. It's our sin and God's permissive will that allow us to be punished for our sin. The dragon is released from a pit. Satan is released from a pit. He's not released from heaven. He's not back in heaven. His place wasn't found there anymore. If your Christian identity pastor is teaching you that Satan is in heaven, that man is a charlatan because he's denying the plain word of Scripture. And I saw a messenger descending from out of heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he held fast the dragon, that serpent of old. There we go. The dragon is the serpent of Genesis 3. He's been on earth since before the days of Genesis 3. Because his place was found no more in heaven. Who is the false accuser, or the devil, and the adversary, or Satan? And he bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and barred and set a seal upon it, that he may no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years should be completed. After these, it is necessary for him to be released for a short time. Now, the messenger comes from heaven. See, Satan, ostensibly not in heaven, must be on the earth. He holds him fast, and he throws him into a bottomless pit for a thousand years. All of this is allegory, but no matter which way you look at it, Satan Satan wasn't in heaven before the messenger came down. Satan wasn't in heaven during the thousand years. Satan's not in heaven now. You're an idiot if you think so. The demonic realm, where we have demons, disembodied spirits, that's a different thing. That's not heaven. The demons are not in heaven. And the demons are disembodied spirits. The Satans we worry about in this world, they are embodied spirits. They're not disembodied spirits. They're bastard spirits in human bodies, broken cisterns. That's what the Enoch literature also instructs. With the eventual acceptance of Christianity in Europe, the Jew was ostracized from Christian society. 
This ostracism was also a process, but it began to take hold in the 7th century A.D., and it lasted until nearly the 19th century A.D. In fact, in some places, it did last that long. However, what we would call crypto-Jews had taken control of England, the Roman Catholic Church, and the financial power of Europe by the 16th century A.D., in the interim period, the Jew is allowed into Europe only as chattel property of the nobility, and the Jew could not hold office or have any part in government. There were also severe restrictions in courts of justice and dealings with Christian citizens. Jewish emancipation, when the Jews acquired equal rights with Christians, and quickly caused the corruption of Christian society in Europe. That came during diverse times in Europe through the middle of the 19th century. Some nations, it happened earlier. In France, it happened at the very end of the 18th century. The same with Austria. In Poland, Poland's a special case. Poland, the Jews were given... Um, the Jews were given their emancipation and equal rights 500 years before that, in the 14th century, which is why the Jews flourished in Poland. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they who sat upon them, Satan's locked in a pit right now, in the first three verses, and judgment had been given to them, and the souls of those having been beheaded on account of the testimony of Yahshua and on account of the word of Yahweh, when the Jews were instigating the Roman persecutions of Christians, and who did not worship the beast nor his image and did not receive the inscribed mark upon their foreheads and upon their hands, and they lived and ruled with Christ for a thousand years. And the Christian martyrs of the Roman period were the heroes of the medieval Christian period. For better or worse, in spite of its imperfect application, Christianity reigned in Europe until the Jew was once again the master after he had gained political influence and economic advantage from the beginning of the 19th century. Revelation 20, verse 5. This is the first restoration the line about the rest of the dead living again, that's what confuses most people about Revelation chapter 20. That line does not belong to the original manuscripts. Verse 6. Blessed and holy is he having a part in the first restoration. Over these, the second death does not have authority, but they shall be priests of Yahweh and of Christ, and they shall rule with him for the thousand years. And they did. The thousand years of Christian rule lasted until the time of Napoleon when a Jew began to be emancipated and humanism began to replace Christianity as the governing philosophy. Verse 7. And when a thousand years are completed, the adversary, or Satan, shall be released from his prison. If the Edomite Jew is in charge of the world right now, then Satan is out of his prison, and our interpretation is correct. If the Edomite Jew is not in control of the world right now, 
and we're wrong. I'll admit being wrong. I think I'm right. If the nations are not deceived right now, then our interpretation is wrong. If all the world's nations are deceived right now by this Edomite Jew, their central banking system, their globalism, their multiculturalism, and all of the international trade and, and international finance that goes along with the Edomite Jew, if those nations are not all deceived, then I'm wrong. And my interpretation, my interpretation is wrong. And I apologize. But if all those nations are deceived and under the spell of the Edomite Jew right now, then I'm right. And Satan, he's out of his prison. And he's running things once again. I'll go back and read verse 7. And when a thousand years are completed, the adversary shall be released from his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle, of which the number of them is of the sand of the sea. And they had gone up upon the breadth of the earth and encircled the encampment of the saints in the beloved city. If white nations are not surrounded by aliens right now, then I'm wrong. I apologize. I do. I repent. But if white nations are all surrounded by aliens right now, and our nations are overrun with aliens, then I'm right. And this is true. And my interpretation is good. And all you people that think, all you clowns that think Satan is still in heaven, you're all idiots. And the false accuser, I'm sorry, and they had gone up upon the breadth of the earth and encircled the encampment of the saints in the beloved city. That's where they are right now. And I don't know how long it's going to be until the rest of this is fulfilled. I wish it were tomorrow. And fire descended from out of heaven and devoured them. I'm not going to say that has a literal fulfillment. It's going to be a lot more difficult than that. And the false accuser, or the devil, who deceived them is cast into the lake of fire and sulfur, where are also the beast and the false prophet, and they shall be tormented day and night for the eternal ages. The Edomite Jew is the great dragon. The Edomite Jew is Satan let out of the pit. And it is, it is the Edomite Jew who having infiltrated and gained power over Christian society, the woman fled to the wilderness, has brought all of these other races with which the Jew has aforetime attempted to conquer Christendom, and he's brought all of these other races into Christian nations today. And we let them, because we're the whore. We got the dragon and we got the beast. The dragon gives its power to the beast. And we are the whore. We've joined ourselves to the beast. That's a discussion for another time. But we're the whore, so we let it happen. The rest of the chapter describes the return and judgment of Christ. We wish we could get there, but we won't do it yet. The vision is parallel to a vision in Ezekiel in chapters 38 and 39, which go into greater detail concerning the gathering of the nations against Israel. The bottom line is this. If you accept the other races, you accept the works of the devil. You accept 
the Edomite Jew. We'll get to that too from Scripture shortly. Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 1. We see the same story told in Revelation chapter 20 in more detail from a slightly different perspective. And a word of Yahweh God came unto me saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophecy against him. And say, thus saith Yahweh God, behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and sheets, all of them handling swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer, and all his bands, the house of Tugarma in the north of the north quarters, and all his bands, and many people with thee. Be thou prepared, and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. After many days thou shalt be visited. In the later years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel. So all this, the land gathered out of many people, there is children of Israel who were taken out of their places of captivity in Mesopotamia in the Near East and migrated into Europe the land gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel. This describes Europe, America, wherever the people of God are now, which have always been waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Ezekiel supplies a list of Adamic nations which accompany this Gog. It can be shown that this Gog, and I did... I did so in Christ-like, but I won't have the time to do so tonight. I believe it's in chapter 17 of my Revelation interpretation, which is freely available. Every word of the text and, and every podcast is freely available at Christogenia. It can be shown that God does indeed represent the Edomite Jew. And he's at the head of this list of Adamic nations. Ezekiel lists Adamic nations. These were indeed among the adversaries of the children of Israel in Ezekiel's time. Therefore, Ezekiel, in, in my opinion, was apparently supplied a vision in terms that the prophet could understand. However, today, those nations are really no longer Adamic nations. A lot of them did maintain their names. But today they're all race-mixed, and they represent the Asiatic and the Arab world today. And they have, been, they have all been in the power of the serpent. They've all been under the power of the serpent for thousands of years. Therefore, they are a large part of that flood which is released from the mouth of the serpent, by which he makes war against the woman. From verse 9, Ezekiel 38. They shall ascend and come like a storm, 
Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands, and many people with thee. Has anybody seen New York and London lately? Thus saith Yahweh God, it shall also come to pass, that at the same time shall things come into my mind, and thou shalt think an evil thought, and thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. They're here. I will go to them that are at rest, and they dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil and to take a prey. Every time you see a white girl with a nigger, a squat monster, an Asian, oriental, yellow squat monster, whatever you want to call them, you see a prey. You don't see a marriage. You see a prey. You see somebody being devoured. You see a young boy or a young girl with somebody of another race. You see somebody being devoured by the enemies of Israel and of God. They're little bastard children. Yahweh said that he would kill the children of fornication with death. Revelation chapter 2, that's what he said. That's the word of God. It's not my word. Sitting there in Revelation chapter 2, Jezebel is used as the model who teaches his children to commit fornication, to race mix. Yahweh will kill her children with death. Why would he kill the children for the sinner? Because they're bastards, and bastards shall not enter the assembly of Yahweh. It doesn't matter if they're 49%, 25%, 15%, depending on whether you're Don Spears, Jeremy Visser, or Eli James. It doesn't matter if they're 1%. They're bastards. If we don't stand firm on a race issue, we have no care for the word of our God. We're just kidding ourselves and accepting the works of the devil. To take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, the children of Israel, which have gotten cattle and goods, and dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba and Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey? to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil. They're here. Many commentators believe that this describes a military invasion. However, as it is described in Revelation chapter 20, the nations are deceived into coming against Israel. Therefore, since today, it is evident that these Asiatic and Arab nations flow into the nations of Christendom rather freely. While a military invasion should not be entirely ruled out, our own government already is, is beholden to these people and already has us captive in tyranny. 
A military invasion should not be entirely ruled out, but it is not necessary even if the prophet described the invasion in military terms. The nations of Christendom are already flooded with these aliens, and Satan, the Edomite Jew, has brought them here. And we've agreed, because we're the whore. Now in Ezekiel, it's depicted that Yahweh has brought them here. To help us understand this quandary, which isn't really a quandary, let's read from Judges chapter 3. Now these are the nations which Yahweh left to prove Israel by them. Even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war, at the least such as before knew nothing thereof, namely the five lords of the Philistines. And they were Adamic, except that they were under the influence of the satanic entity. And all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites, the, somebody asked me about the Gibeonites because there's some clown teaching that the Gibeonites were granted mercy. That wasn't by God. They were granted favor. That wasn't by God. The children of Israel were scolded because they did not inquire of God when they made that stupid deal. But that's part of Yahweh's plan. The Gibeonites are actually a branch of the Hivites. And the Hivites that dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal-Hermon unto the entering in of Hamath. And they were to prove Israel by them. So we see that Yahweh, when Israel failed to destroy the Canaanites, Yahweh drove them out to a point, but he left these Canaanites there to prove Israel by them. And the verse tells us why, where it says, to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of Yahweh, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. These Canaanite bastards, these are the forerunners to the Edomite Jews and the Jews of today, to a great extent. These are the forerunners to the bad figs of Judah, which Judah had mixed with to a great extent, why did Yahweh leave them? To prove Israel by them. To know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of Yahweh. So today, you allow this, these Edomite Jew bastards to bring these other races into, this, into these Israelite nations, and you're going to accept them? You failed the test of Judges chapter 3, verse 4. Because you've accepted the Canaanites and the children of bastards and the children of these other races, you've accepted them, you've disregarded the commandments of Yahweh. You failed the test. The Canaanites that brought these other races here and you're going to say, oh, it's okay to have a grandchild that's 25% bastard or 25% of some other race, Yahweh's going to cleanse their blood. You're kidding themselves. 
You're kidding yourself. Yahweh isn't going to cleanse their blood. Yahweh is going to cleanse us of them. He's not going to cleanse their blood. That's not what Joel chapter 3 is saying. Joel chapter 3 is talking about bloodshed. That word blood there is plural. You better check the Hebrew. It's an idiom for bloodshed. Joel 3.19, Joel 3.21, the context is bloodshed. It's not race mixing. Yahweh's not going to accept people of mixed race. Go look at Revelation chapter 2. Jezebel taught the children of Israel to commit fornication. Yahweh's going to kill their children with death because they're bastards. You're a fraud if you're approving of race mixing in Christian identity. You're absolutely 100% contrary to Scripture. Yahweh let these people here to prove Israel by them, to see if they would keep his commandments. As it says in Jeremiah, everybody who eats the sour grapes shall die. I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm reviewing my notes briefly because I, I, I um, discontinued reading them to rant. But that's okay, I ranted most of what was in my notes. The flood of aliens was brought here by Yahweh only so far as he allowed Satan to flood us with these beasts as both a punishment for our sins, and that he may destroy his enemies for his own glory. In the end, Israel is sanctified and all the others are destroyed. In the last part of Ezekiel 38, which we're about to read, there's, an, there's a translation I don't like, and that's the word heathen. It should be rendered nations. Literally, it means nations. There are times when it can mean heathen. I don't agree with that reading here. I'm going to read it as nations. Ezekiel 38:14. Therefore, prophecy, son of man, and say unto God, thus saith Yahweh God, in that day when my people of Israel dwell safely, shalt thou not know it? And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the later days. And I will bring thee against my land, that the nations may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O God, before their eyes." So we see that Yahweh has allowed all these nations to flood our land so that he could be sanctified by destroying them. You want to be in bed next to one of them? You want one of them in the room next door? Wow. I sure as hell don't. Thus saith Yahweh God, Art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them? And it shall come to pass at the same time when God shall come against the land of Israel, saith Yahweh God, that my fury shall come up in my face. 
I don't think you want one of these Mongol squat monsters or one of these damn Negroes in the room next door when this happens. I don't think you want a grandkid in your bedroom that's half of one of these. Wow. I don't think you want one of these in bed next to you. I don't think I could stand the smell. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there should be a great shaking in the land of Israel, so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of heaven and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. And I will call for a sword against him, against God, throughout all my mountains, saith Yahweh God, arise Zion and Tresh. Every man's sword shall be against his brother, so they're going to slay each other for the most part. And I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him all of the flood of the serpent brought into the nations of Christendom and overflowing rain, and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, the Israelite nations, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. Ezekiel chapter 39 is not consecutive to the vision in Ezekiel 38. Rather, it too is a parallelism. Another version of the same vision, which only augments the first one. We shall only read the first few verses here for our purposes tonight. Ezekiel 39.1. Remember, this is a parallel prophecy. Therefore, thou son of man, prophecy against Gog, and say, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I am against thee, O God, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. And I will turn thee back and leave but the sixth part of thee. Now, this translation is contested, and it is almost certainly wrong. There's some basis for it, but it seems not to be in this context. Most versions, including the Septuagint, have, rather than the words, and leave but the sixth part of thee, they have the words, and drive you on, or, and guide thee. And I will turn thee back and drive you on and will cause thee to come up from the north parts and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. They're here. And I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand and I will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands and the people that is with thee. I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sword and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Thou shalt fall upon the open field, for I have spoken it, saith Yahweh God. And no, not every instance of the phrase beasts of the field means the other races. And we can prove that a hundred times over. And I will send a fire on Magog. It's the other races that are with Gog here. 
And I will send a fire upon Magog, and among men that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name any more. And the nations, meaning the Israelite nations, and the nations shall know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One in Israel. The 118th Psalm also parallels Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Revelation chapter 20. I'm sorry, I need a drink. Psalm 118 is a messianic prophecy, but it's not for the first advent. Rather, it's a messianic prophecy for the second advent. And it summarizes Satan's gathering of the nations against Israel in the last days and what happens to them. I'm going to read all 29 verses. Oh, give thanks unto Yahweh, for he is good, because his mercy endures forever. That mercy is extended to the children of Israel exclusively in Scripture. Let Israel now say that his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endures forever. Let them now that fear Yahweh say that his mercy endures forever. I called upon Yahweh in distress, and Yahweh answered me and set me in a large place. Yahweh is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Yahweh taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. It is better to trust in Yahweh than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in Yahweh than to put confidence in princes. All nations compassed me about. This is the body of Christ which is speaking. All nations compassed me about, but in the name of Yahweh will I destroy them. They compassed me about. Yeah, they compassed me about, but in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them, all nations. Remember when I quoted Jeremiah from chapter 30, I think it was verse 11, from chapter 45, here a week ago, that Yahweh guaranteed twice in Jeremiah that he would make a full end of all the nations where Israel was scattered. Here we have it. All nations compass me about, but in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. They compass me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns. For in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. Thou hast thrust sore at me that I might fall, but Yahweh help me. Yahweh is my strength in song. And is become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of Yahweh does valiantly. The right hand of Yahweh is exalted 
The right hand of Yahweh does valiantly. Yes, the recursion is in the psalm. The right hand of Yahweh is exalted. The right hand of Yahweh does valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of Yahweh. Yahweh has chastened me sore, the punishment of the body of Christ, the punishment of Israel. But he has not given me over unto death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them, and I will praise Yahweh. This gate of Yahweh into which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the psalm Christ was quoting in reference to himself. All nations had surrounded me, but in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. Do you think he meant for us to refer to that as well? This is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which Yahweh has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Yahweh. O Yahweh, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of Yahweh. We have blessed you out of the house of Yahweh. God is Yahweh, which has showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with corn, cords even to the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, and I will exalt thee. O give thanks unto Yahweh, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. But all nations shall encompass me about, and in the name of Yahweh I will destroy them. A reference to the second coming. No exclusions. Isaiah chapter 13. There have been some... Well, well, let me put it this way. The fat little Jew boy in Chicago, he likes to play fast and loose with Isaiah 13. We'll get to that in a moment. Isaiah chapter 13 is an oracle against ancient Babylon. While it cannot be fulfilled again in every respect, it is certainly a type for the coming fall of mystery Babylon described in Revelation chapter 18, which we will get to maybe next week. Isaiah chapter 13, the burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see, lift ye up a banner upon the high mountain, exalt the voice under them, shake the hand that they may go into the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones, children of Israel. I have also called my mighty ones from mine anger, even them that rejoice in my highness. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like as of a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. Yahweh of hosts mustereth the hosts of the battle. They come from a far country and from the end of heaven. Even Yahweh and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Howl ye, for the day of Yahweh is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travails. 
hearts. They shall be amazed at one another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of Yahweh cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. These are allegories for world governments. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy, the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place. In the wrath of Yahweh of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger, and it shall be as the chaste roe, and as a sheep that no man takes up. They shall turn every man to his own people and flee every one into his own land. Now, there's a certain so-called Christian identity pastor. That's a joke. He's really a pudgy little Jew boy who has read this passage quite often, and he always stops here. We have recordings of him doing this very thing. Then he claims that when Yahshua returns, that all of the aliens are going to be allowed to go home and live out their days in peace. He's a liar. He purposely stops with verse 14 in order to preach his lies. Let's just read two more verses of this chapter, because everything after verse 16 pertains to the Medes and, and, and the destruction of ancient Babylon. The first 16 verses, I believe, are indeed a dual prophecy. Verses 15 and 16. Everyone, so they'll flee everyone into his own land, right? And verse 15 says, Everyone that is found shall be thrust through, and everyone that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. Their children also shall be dashed into pieces before their eyes. Their houses shall be spoiled and their wives ravished. Now, of course, that has to do with the conquest of the ancient Babylon and the destruction of the Medes. But it's parallel to the fall of mystery Babylon, which we shall see. I'm going to read parts of it tonight. There's another passage which is a favorite of many Christian identity pastors from Obadiah concerning Edom. And they love to read it, Obadiah 1.18, where it says, And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, the dragon, the devil, Satan. For Yahweh has spoken it. Many of those same CI pastors who embrace the other so-called races, they love to quote Obadiah 18. Yes, they do. But they ignore what that same prophet says in verses 15 and 16. How could they do it with a straight face? They should all be ashamed of themselves. You want to embrace bastards? You want to embrace the other races? You want to embrace the flood of the serpent and think it's good and invite these people into your families? 
to multiply with your children. Your children are devoured when they multiply, when they couple, when they fornicate with these beasts. Count them as dead. I've set that example. I've counted a couple of my own children as dead for doing the same thing, even though they didn't even realize it. From Obadiah 15 and 16, a passage which is directly relevant to all of the aliens who have come into our Christian Israel lands. From verse 15, for the day of Yahweh is near upon all the nations, or heathen, as it says in the King James, as thou hast done eating on his holy mountain. His holy mountain is the children of Israel. That's what his holy mountain is. It's called Sion in the Bible. Sion is his holy mountain. But the day of Yahweh is near upon all the nations. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. Your little bastard grandchildren are going to be as though they had not been. These are the beasts of Isaiah 56. These are the beasts of Jeremiah 31, the caterpillars, the canker worms, the palm worms, the locusts. These are the nations gathered against Israel by that Satan which deceives them in Revelation chapter 20 and the hordes of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. They shall all drink and swallow down. They shall drink from the cup of Yahweh's wrath. That's what they're going to drink from, and they shall swallow it down. This is the cup of the wrath of fornication, of the whore of Israel. In Revelation chapter 18, and all the products of the fornication, and all the fornicators, these other races brought into this land to devour the children of Israel, they are... They are going to drink, and they shall be as though they had not been for the glory of God. You want to accept your half-Cherokee son-in-law and your squat monster granddaughter or the nigger your daughter brought home last week or your son that Spicky's dating? Oh, yeah, that's fornication. They shall drink, and they shall be as though they had not been, as though they never even existed. Revelation chapter 18. We'll read the first few verses. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit. That's, what we're, that's right where we are today. And a cage of every unclean and hateful bird, for all nations 
had drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That's the drink of Obadiah 16. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. We're going to read four verses now from Micah chapter 4. I'm sorry, maybe it's three verses. Because Micah chapter 4 summarizes the situation described in Revelation chapter 20 and here in Revelation chapter 18 concerning the fall of mystery Babylon. Micah 4.11, speaking to the children of Israel in the mountains of Israel. Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they, not, they know not the thoughts of Yahweh, neither understand they his counsel. For he shall gather them as sheaves into the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron and I will make thy hooves brass. And thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. Arise and thresh. With this call, these next verses of Revelation 18 shall be fulfilled, where it says of Mystery Babylon. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Fornication is sin. These Canaanites, they were left here by Yahweh to see if Israel would obey his commandments. Are you going to be found with somebody of another race in your bed? or in your children. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her, double according to her works. In the cup which she has filled, fill to her double. So the children of Israel are going to have a role in the punishment of mystery Babylon. However, if the children of Israel refuse to come out of Babylon, if they refuse to heed the call to be a separate people, that is why the parable, in the parable of the ten virgins, five of them are locked out of the meeting with the bridegroom. They're not admitted. Why? They were off in the markets. They were off playing with the merchants of mystery Babylon. Their God was their belly, their commerce, their government. They didn't heed the call. They didn't have oil in their lamps. From 2 Corinthians, chapter 6 and 7, the last verse here is from chapter 7. This is the Christogenia New Testament. Do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. For what participation has justice and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light towards darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? 
Or what share the faithful with the faithless, meaning those who do not have the faith, the faith of Abraham, which is twofold. You have to believe what Abraham believed, and you have to be a product of Abraham's belief. And what agreement has a temple of Yahweh with idols? Because the other races are the children of strange gods. For you are a temple of the living Yahweh, just as Yahweh has said. I will dwell among them, and I will walk about, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. On which account? Come out from the midst of them and be separated, says the prince, and do not be joined to the impure, and I will admit you. And I will be for you for a father, and you will be mine for sons and daughters, says the almighty prince. Therefore, the words of Paul, having these promises, beloved, we must cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and of spirit, put the bastards away, accomplishing sanctity in our of Yahweh. There are fools who now claim that I am making Christian identity look stupid for upholding the law of God on making Christian identity look stupid. If I'm making them look stupid, it's because they are stupid. Don Spears, Eli James, Jeremy Visser, all you other clowns. Screwy Dewey. It is these people who are stupid because they seek to please men rather than to obey the gospel of God. Yahshua Christ shall spit them out of his mouth. We are not to dilute the gospel message in order to make men comfortable. What's the scripture say about the wisdom of the world? We are not to pervert the law of our God to please men, to hell with the bastards and all those who love them. Next week, good fish, bad fish, wheat, pears, sheep, goats, every plant, the marriage supper, the lamb, and the lake of fire. Red, yellow, black, and brown, lake of fire, throw them down. Yeah, does that sound stupid? If you think that sounds stupid, you've got a problem with Scripture. Thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh. And good night.